When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. George Bernard is one of the most important historians working on the Tudors today. Emeritus Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Southampton and a Leverhulme Emeritus Fellow, he is the author, as G.W. Bernard, of such thought-provoking and meticulously researched books as The King's Reformation, Henry VIII and the Remaking of the English Church, or Anne Boleyn, Fatal Attractions. His latest book is called Who Ruled Tudor England? And it's a fundamentally important guide to the dynamics of Tudor power. It asks, where did power really lie? And it also crucially examines the question by thinking about the scholars who have shaped our perception of how Tudor England was governed, because it's been a much contested field. Like everything George writes, it is both brilliant and combative, provocative and important. And I decided to speak to him about it for today's episode of Not Just the Tudors. George, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. And I'm delighted to talk about this important new book of yours. And one of the interesting things is that you start by reflecting on the historians of Tudor government. Why did you decide to start there? Because I think that adds a very interesting dimension to our understanding and our study. And I was in that sense fortunate that I did get to know several historians rather well. And so I had access in some cases to their papers. In other times I talked to them. And it just struck me that this is a dimension which is valuable. I cite E.H. Carr, the historian of the Soviet Union, who in a series of lectures, What is History? He said the first thing to know was to know the historian. That left a mark with me, but I did feel rather frustrated because I quickly realised that in the normal course of events, it would be extremely hard to find out any personal details about people. And this is something that perhaps can't be successfully attempted very often. But here, there is a group of historians where I thought it would work. And the crucial amongst them, the one to whom they're all responding in some ways, is the person we kind of think of as the grandfather of Tudor history, Sir Geoffrey Elton. Could you tell us a little bit about him? I think we'll come back to talking about the Tudor revolution in government a bit further on, but perhaps we could think about who he was 
the spirit of his age that might have subtly affected his ideas and, broadly speaking, what those ideas were? Yes. Well, in a way, who ruled Tudor England? Geoffrey Elton ruled Tudor England, <laughs> putting forward arguments that clearly caught people's imagination and interest and perhaps were imposed in textbooks and schools and so on. But he had a remarkable impact, I think, on the study of history in Britain. His background is unusual. He was a refugee from Nazi Germany. His family were assimilated Jews. They didn't particularly see themselves as Jewish, but they risked falling victim to Nazi tyranny. And they managed to get out. That's to say, Geoffrey Elton, his younger brother, and his parents, and they came to England. And again, I think that that gives a further dimension to our studies. If you read what Elton wrote about the practice of government, then I think he was clearly influenced by his background, his experiences. He came to think that he should have been born English. He very much associated with English ways. And that perhaps had an effect on the kinds of things he researched and wrote about. The subtitle of your book is Paradoxes of Power. And you reflect on the fact that there were moments at which a ruler could seem all-powerful and then the second later they would seem to be impotent. So I suppose the big question that we should pose as we go in to think about who ruled Tudor England is precisely about those who appeared to do so. How much power did the Tudor monarchs have? Were they very much ruling as well as reigning? I think they were, though that is controversial, like so much of what one says about Tudor history. I think that Henry VII, Henry VIII, Mary, Elizabeth, I think that they, in their different ways, had a very high conception of kingship, queenship, and I think they accepted and felt that they had been sent by God to rule and that they did what they should and could. And I think that they were often politically, tactically astute. One might not always approve of what they did, their policies, their actions. I'm not suggesting that everything in that sense is rosy. But if you're looking at um, who is ruling, I think the monarchs were very much ruling. They didn't just reign. What were the constraints on royal power? The constraints were partly constraints which no one could do very much about, the hard facts of the situation. I cite the modern political scientist Robert Mackenzie, who pointed out that it was all very well politicians having all kinds of schemes and so on. The question of whether things were actually possible was another matter. And in the 16th century, one of the greatest challenges to monarchs in Europe was religion, that what happened was the fracturing of the Christendom that they'd grown up with. Religious divisions were emerging. Some people were prepared to put religious beliefs above their loyalty to monarchs. And that how to deal with that was an immediate challenge for monarchs. And I suppose one of the ways in which we see that being done, certainly under Henry, is about extending the definition of treason, or it seems to be extended, at least the definition of treason yes. or the law of treason is capacious. Yes, the law of treason gave rulers the opportunity 
not simply to punish their opponents, including executing them at times, but to do so morally, with a moral high ground. To convict someone of treason is not just to say that they have behaved wrongly, they've broken laws, they have acted in their own interests, not in that of the realm. It is trying to find firm ground Everyone would agree that certain things were wrong. So if you could accuse people of such things, to that extent, your position was strengthened. But I'm not sure that, in fact, accusing people for treason really did work so well, because you didn't need to accept the monarch's view of looking at things. If you were a religious dissident, then I think you wouldn't feel that religious dissent was tyranny. And of course, the rhyme, if treason never prospers, well, it doesn't, because if it prospers, it isn't treason. Treason was something that you could use to deal with vanquished opponents seizing their lands, for example, for their offences. And treason gave you the means to do that. That's right. So by definition, treason is something that people have done wrong, which is interesting. It's almost impossible to even talk about the nature of an uprising or a challenge to royal authority without putting it in terms of committing a crime. Yes. And clearly, if you could bring out that crimes had been committed, that people involved in rebellion had committed offences, that was, if you had managed to defeat the rebellion, that was potentially strengthening your position. It's not easy dealing with rebellion because you can only punish a certain proportion of the population. If you try to do too much, then your position could well be weakened. You needed to maintain the loyalty or to recover the loyalty of people who for some time had been very critical. And it's interesting from the other point of view that those seen as rebels quite often would have denied that they were rebels, that they accepted that the law was the way it was, and so they wanted pardons for their offences, say, in gathering together and rebelling. But that meant that if they accepted a pardon, they were also accepting that they'd behaved wrongly, that they'd broken the law. Pardons are often misunderstood, particularly with people these days campaigning that some people who have been punished, victims of authority, should not have been punished. They should be given a pardon. But the difficulty with that is that what pardons did was to lift the punishment. You were convicted of riotous assembly or rebellion or treason, given a pardon. What did that do? It didn't say that you had behaved rightly. It didn't say that what you had done had been legal or that you had been the victim of a monstrously unjust law. It simply said you shouldn't be punished for it, which, if you were still alive, was obviously a blessing and something worth having, but clearly couldn't affect people later. That's very interesting. I remember having a similar moment of revelation talking about the nature of 
tolerance in the 16th century hmm. and that to tolerate something by definition means that you think it's bad but you're going to put up with it yes. and we think of tolerance now as being the opposite that you have to like things yes i don't think toleration is ambiguous and as you've said that what it doesn't really mean is that everything is permitted and equal value and should be supported by the state and those who attack toleration should be dealt with quite firmly no i think all too often in the 16th century, it's what couldn't be done otherwise. A reluctant acceptance that there were some people whose views were different from yours, and that it was probably better not to impose too much. I think of monarchs, I think Queen Elizabeth, again, this is controversial, but I think that she did quite deliberately leave a door open for people with a variety of views. If you were openly a Jesuit missionary priest threatening to assassinate the Queen, no tolerance there. If you were an archbishop who wanted to have prophesyings, meetings of clergy, where they would radicalise themselves, perhaps that's what Queen Elizabeth felt. And when Grindel, her archbishop, refused to go along with this, Elizabeth was quite firm. She suspended Grindel from exercising his office. He wasn't sent to prison. He wasn't personally hard done by, but he wasn't allowed to be an archbishop. And it was the Queen who said that. Grindel's fellow bishops were not happy, but they went along with it. But this shows the limits to toleration. But having said that, there was, I think, more scope in Elizabeth's England for meeting, for worshipping in different ways. This was a possibility, I think. And so in that sense, she was practising toleration. But one needs to look at it in the round. That yes, for some, things were possible, but there were others who were pushing too far. If we go back to thinking about power, you start by looking at the Tudor nobility. Now, one thing that's often said about the nobility in Tudor England is that they are declining. Is that true? No, it's not true. There are some individual noblemen who fall into trouble. Edward Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham, listens to prophecies by a monk that one day his family will be kings. It's possible for a nobleman like Richard Grey, third Earl of Kent, to gamble away his inheritance. And then they are dealt with by monarchs. Henry VIII had... Buckingham executed for treason, Henry VII tried to recover the Earl of Kent's financial position. But individuals like that are not typical of the nobility of the whole. There are about 50 noblemen at any one time, and some of them are perhaps too old or too young. But the bulk of them are involved in a general overseeing of the regions, the counties of England, that they have a position of watchfulness, that they're not involved day by day, but they are there, and this gives them considerable authority. When wars or rebellions take place, it's noblemen who are involved in dealing with the rebellions as they can, and including fighting if that becomes necessary. So noblemen, I think, have a very significant role that they're not, in a sense, all-powerful. 
They can't do anything they want to. I think that a lot of the talk about nobles in decline is more a reflection of a misunderstanding of how powerful nobles were before. I think less had changed than that model would suggest. And there's also a more general area which I'm conscious of, is that when in the 16th century men wrote about these things and responded to questioning of the nobility of the social hierarchy, overwhelmingly, the writings supported the notion that nobility was something special, that if noblemen behaved well, as they should, nevertheless, because they were noble, their virtues would burn the brighter for that. If you weren't a nobleman, but you were an ambitious lawyer, a judge, perhaps, if you were a merchant who had managed to put together estates and wealth, what did they do? They tried to set themselves up as landed noblemen, as landed men, hoping perhaps that they would in due course be ennobled by the king. But the values of 16th century society were aristocratic, and I don't think that changed. Yes, I think that's a really interesting observation that you make of how successful courtiers or counsellors or even merchants, you say, people like Sir William Compton could convert ephemeral royal favour <laughs> into a lasting patrimony precisely by trying to act like a nobleman in the hope yes, of being a nobleman, yes. gathering yes. land, really. And what is interesting is you have newly ennobled men in the 16th century, but monarchs do this because they see noblemen as being very useful, loyal overseers of the regions. In the later 16th century, the role position of Lord Lieutenant becomes widespread everywhere, that there are Lords Lieutenant in each county, Sometimes this has been seen as a transformation. I think it's more a formalisation of the powers and interests that noblemen long had held. Now, if we can see these instances when the crown diminishes noblemen like Buckingham, like Surrey, like Essex, how far then could we see that nobility could limit their monarchs? I don't think that the monarchs of Tudor England, on the whole, did things which would provoke a large range of opinion and produce that sort of problem. In the 17th century, it's different. Charles I faces critics in Parliament, not every nobleman, and there's only a civil war because the political nation splits in two, and there are people prepared to fight for the monarch as well as those who were prepared to fight against. And the same is true if you look backwards that you will find in the turbulent politics of the late 14th and 15th centuries. Noblemen are involved then in overturning monarchs who've been governing badly. A lot of the time this happens in war. If a monarch gets into a war which goes wrong, which becomes expensive, which doesn't seem to be achieving anything, which is being led by the monarch's advisors who 
was seen as corrupt and self-interested, then there are possibilities, things could change. And it's often in such circumstances that changes which have lasting consequences occur. But back to what I was saying earlier about the skillfulness of Tudor monarchs, I think that they managed not to get themselves into this sort of situation. What would you say then to those who would point to 1569, the Northern Rebellion, as being a noble uprising? It wasn't really a noble uprising. That More recent research has suggested that religion was a significant factor and commons, gentry, many were involved. It wasn't simply or even mainly a noble revolt. If you look at those who were up in arms, they were not much connected with the noblemen. Looking at noblemen's patronage, livery, the men that noblemen would raise if they'd been asked to raise armed force for the Queen, there isn't very much to suggest that this is a noble revolt. The Earl of Northumberland, I think, did feel aggrieved that he hadn't been trusted by Queen Elizabeth, probably rightly, and he reconverted to Catholicism, and that was one of the things that wasn't acceptable to Queen Elizabeth. She was, as I was suggesting, tolerant, but not to the point of allowing open Catholic worship. And to do that, which is what happened in 1569 during the rebellion in Durham Cathedral, that was beyond what was acceptable for Elizabeth. Now, your point about the 17th century immediately directs our focus to thinking about Parliament. So how should we understand, and I'm aware this is a contentious question, but how should we understand the nature and role of Parliament when it came to governing Tudor England? I think Parliament was important in various ways. There was a convention that if the king, the monarch, wanted taxes... Parliament would have to consent to them. That was, I think, far-reaching, not simply that it was done that way, that when a monarchs wanted taxes, they almost always went to Parliament and asked for Parliament. But it's also that knowing that that would be necessary affected the way that rulers behaved. They didn't attempt to ask for impossibly high amounts of money most of the time because they knew that Parliament the political nation would object. Governments didn't come up with new taxes because they felt that, again, this would be unpopular and they might have to yield. So to that extent, I think parliaments were a restraint on monarchs, not because they were trying to seize power from monarchs, not because they were interested in gaining some sort of sovereignty, but simply because they didn't want to pay vast sums in tax or that they wanted to be quite clear what the taxes were for. Yes, it almost feels like there's a kind of curious incident of the dog in the night time going on when it comes to taxation or finance not being an issue between Tudor monarchs and Tudor parliaments. If we put it in the grand overview of history, it has been before, it will be again. Why is it not such an issue? Is it just because they're being very sensible? Or I think so, else? yes, because it could have gone wrong in various ways for the Tudors, but it just didn't in particular places. Henry VIII didn't get involved in a war which proved too devastating, until towards the end of his life. And perhaps if Henry had lived, 
maybe then there would have been more protests of one kind or another at the financial burden of war, war against France, war against the Scots in the late 1540s. Henry, in a way, one may feel was lucky in getting away with doing things. It's not difficult to construct an otherwise scenario showing Henry VIII in difficulties. In many ways, his son, Edward VI, and those who ruled in his name, inherited the problems that Henry had created by fighting a war, by raising large amounts of money in taxation, by debasing the coinage. But it didn't come to a head in a way that affected royal power. There were rebellions in 1549, but the rebels didn't attempt to change the political structure. They weren't trying to avoid, to trying to move away from a monarchical system. Their concerns were much more immediate and specific. Religion in the southwest, agrarian issues in East Anglia. How much do you think the money from the monasteries was ensuring the financial security of the Tudor crown as well? I'm perhaps a bit of an outlier here, but I'm not convinced that the monasteries were dissolved for their wealth. The wealth was taken. I'm not suggesting that it was all given to charity that the poor, whatever, or just husbanded. No, it was spent. But I don't think that was the main motive for the dissolution monasteries. What I would suggest there is that it was religion. Henry VIII saw the monasteries as potential fifth columns that his fiercest critics during the break of Rome had been monks and abbots. Not many, but nevertheless enough to wound Henry's pride, I think. And I think that the dissolution of the monasteries followed on because Henry saw the pilgrimage of grace, the rebellion in 1536, is largely to do with the monasteries. And so that's why I think Henry did it. The wealth was simply blown on the wars of the 1540s. That was imprudent, but from Henry's point of view, it meant that he could sustain some years of fighting at a scale that hadn't easily been possible before, but it was very imprudent. You know, suppose Henry had held on to the monastic lands. The monastic lands were sold. They weren't given away. They were sold at market prices. So that's what the revenue was. But it's a one-off doing it like that if you're selling the lands rather than keeping their income year by year. It's not something you could repeat. However, if Henry had been more prudent and if the monarchy had had a larger landed endowment, then maybe the history of the 17th century might have been different. Yes, that's interesting. That's a wonderful counterfactual. The other thing to ask about Parliament, and I'm aware I'm touching on the subject of your very big and very important book, The King's Reformation, which we'll have to discuss another time. But just briefly thinking about religion, one of the things that's been said about the Reformation Parliament, 1529 to 1536, is that in its nature and the kind of sort of far-reaching measures and revolutionary change that's enacted by that Parliament, that it changes the nature of Parliament. You may wish to comment on that. And also, I wonder how much you think, and I know I'm touching on a sore point here, how much did it push through that religious change, like the break with Rome? Well, all this is very controversial, as you're suggesting. But I have very little doubt that Henry VIII is behind the religious changes, that it is Henry who wants 
statutes that wants parliament to make laws. Why do you make laws? Because it's easier to punish people who disobey. If there's a law which says you have to believe all this, you have to swear an oath to the royal supremacy. If you refuse and you can be punished in two levels, it makes it easier for the monarch. On the one hand, they're more likely to be people who simply conform because of the danger. On the other side, you have people who are not obeying you, you punish. So you have a two-pronged attempt to assert your authority. Now, yes, the laws changing religion, the acts of annates, the act of appeal saying you can't appeal to the Pope, they are indeed passed by Parliament. Why does Henry VIII do that? Well, I think there's a sleight of hand here. You get Parliament to approve government measures, and then you stand back and say, well, look, Parliament has approved what I'm doing. It's not me, it's Parliament that came clamouring for changes. That perhaps wasn't altogether true. Henry, I think, is very skillful at passing the responsibility for measures on to others. And I think that's partly what's going on here. And this has misled people right up to the present when they look at what's behind all this. So no, I don't think the fact that parliaments legislated on religion really increases their power. It would have done if you could show the parliament in a majority, in a large proportion, wanted religious changes and wrestled with monarchs to get them. But it's not like that at all. Over the 16th century, in virtually every reign, apart from Henry VII, you find Parliament legislating on religion. But it's a different religion. It's a different settlement in each reign. Now, you allude there to how people have understood this, and this brings us to think about Geoffrey Elton's idea of the Tudor revolution in government, which he said took place in the 1530s and was masterminded by Thomas Cromwell. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. First of all, could you set out what Elton argued? Elton thought that the administration of a country was extremely important. That's to say those who held offices at the centre, royal officials, and in particular, those who dealt with money, the financial administration. And what Geoffrey Alton claimed was that the financial administration of a country was central to the way in which it worked. And he argued further that under Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII's minister, in the 1530s, revolutionary changes took place in the way that money was administered. The taxes that were paid in, the rents from lands, they came in to the central administrative departments, the Exchequer, and a number of other departments. And in great detail, Elton argued that there was a fundamental transformation enacted, operated by Thomas Cromwell. And that had the effect of making government no longer personal. It was no longer a matter of one man and the king. This was now in personal government, beginnings of modern bureaucratic government, how the civil service came to be. And Elton expounded his ideas vigorously, very forcefully. You might have thought that perhaps there might have been some doubt whether his chosen topic was really quite as central as he thought it was. Is the administration of royal revenue really the key to things? Isn't it obvious that any monarch, any minister, would want to have the revenues checked and double-checked so that the king wasn't being defrauded. Embezzlement was obviously to be punished and so on. But that was pretty obvious. And if you look back to the 12th or 13th century, these sorts of issues were live then. Accountability was something that was very important, that what we would call civil servants needed to be accountable, show that they they really had the right to have the money they were holding and make sure that they did present it properly in the king's coffers. So whether Elton was right to see what he saw as quite so fundamental, again, there were in the 16th century government papers, grants that were made were written by hand 
and then they were sealed. The manuscript, the document was sealed with lead, whatever it might be. And when you had a seal, that was a way of protecting a document from, again, being defrauded, being misused. Elton thought a great deal changed when a different type of seal was used. I can't, for the life of me, think that it was as important as that. It's an interesting administrative evolution. And that, I think, is what one might say about Elton's arguments all along. What is intriguing is that the Tudor revolution in government, which is how he described what he was describing, that phrase seems to have been almost an afterthought. If you read his PhD thesis, although he there has many administrative changes and Cromwell's role in them, he doesn't call them a revolution. The word revolution appears only once and it means the break with Rome. It doesn't mean the administrative changes. And the suspicion must be that in order to find a publisher for his book, he came up with a dramatic way of presenting his findings, which was not unfair in the sense that this is what he thought he was showing, but maybe that that had something to do with it. Yes, perhaps if you call it administrative change in the 1530s, it wouldn't have sold quite so many copies. But what are the objections that can be made to it? Because it sounds fairly, okay, run of the mill, here we are thinking about how the administration runs. But out of Elton's understanding of Tudor England has come, if it's not too unfair to say, there's almost every misconception about the Tudor period that one can think of, maybe not every, but a lot of them. What have you made of his claims? Well, I think there's a tendency to exaggerate the significance of changes. And that, I think, in many ways explains Thomas Cromwell's role is exaggerated. Again, this is all very controversial, but I think Cromwell was the king's leading minister. Cromwell did what Henry wanted. I don't think Cromwell was pursuing an agenda of his own, except that he was, like other courtier administrators, quite keen on his own advancement and was amassing a patrimony in lands, as we were talking about earlier. So I don't think Cromwell was a model, new, modern minister, whether he was actually corrupt, but some of the things he did came sailing close to the wind, getting monasteries, for example, to pay him an annual payment, annuity, for his good favour, for example, doesn't sound too good. Then I think Elton misunderstood or minimised changes and practices in the medieval past. And then equally, I think he minimised them in the period after the 16th century. There were significant advances in the administration of royal money before Elton's revolution in government period. And equally, there were very important changes in government administration in the 1690s, in the 1780s, in the mid 19th century. In the 16th century, everyone who got a position in the royal administration got that because of patronage, because someone with influence and power had recommended, perhaps money had changed hands. In the mid-19th century, you get a big change that civil servant is recruited by competitive examination. One can puzzle over whether that's the best way of recruiting people, but it certainly was different. And I think that Elton rather diminishes later developments as he minimised earlier ones. 
And that's one general point. I think Elton went on to make claims for the Privy Council that all monarchs need a group of advisors, of councillors, ministers who advise them and oversee the implementation of policy. And I suspect such bodies always benefit from some sort of reorganisation. But I think that what Alton was doing was to take a quite small administrative change and exaggerate its overall significance, that there always had been councillors and that there should be some changes, that better keeping of records, that councillors once sworn in remain councillors for the rest of their various changes. I don't think that they necessarily have a dramatic impact But I think if you're Elton, you make bold and dramatic claims for them. And I think that's one of the reasons why his views proved so influential and were accepted by so many. And crucial to his view was how it made Henry appear. Famously, he characterised Henry VIII as a bit of a booby and a bit of a baby. And then one of Elton's students, David Starkey, wrote about the role of the Privy Council and individuals in it working politically under Henry VIII. And perhaps the next stage from that is that he and the late Professor Eric Ives started to see Henrician politics very much as this struggle between competing courtiers who formed factions. And factional politics was then used to explain the downfall of Wolsey and Anne Boleyn and Cromwell. And you, of course, engaged in battle by journal article with Eric Ives about why Anne Boleyn fell. So tell us what you make of factions, which has become such a sort of dominant idea in the historiography. I have nothing against the notion in principle that groups of administrators, courtiers, perhaps noblemen, might in some circumstances gather together and seek to influence monarchs. I'm not claiming that that could never happen, but it just seems to me that in the reign of Henry VIII, that seems almost the last place to look for that kind of power. It seems to me that the councillors of Henry VIII's reign are much more servants of a tyrant, not squabbling amongst themselves, but more or less trying to keep things going without falling foul of the king and being very wary of doing anything that the king didn't immediately approve. I was very struck that Thomas Cromwell kept lists of things to do, and they would only have been seen by Thomas Cromwell and Thomas Cromwell's secretary. These weren't public documents. These weren't made for posterity. And why do I think that they're so interesting? Because they begin, each of them, there are about 40 of these, by saying to know the king's pleasure, what the king will have done with and then follows the person or the problem or whatever. And I think this suggests very much that Henry's on top of the detail and that he's making decisions about how, say, Thomas More or the Nun of Kent are treated. Thomas Cromwell doesn't dare implement policy, do anything of this kind without just checking that this is really what Henry VIII wants. And I think that that's very eloquent. So I would argue that Thomas Cromwell, like Thomas Wolsey before him, were very hardworking, very loyal servants of the monarchs, but that they didn't determine policy. They worked with the king 
they fulfilled the king's wishes. That was their role. And what has pushed me to this view is evidence of the kind sources that I've just been describing. It seems to me very hard to make that work in a factional model of politics. I do think that, say, in the reign of Edward VI, when there is no monarch who has the capacity to wield ultimate authority, there you do, I think, get struggles between groups of noblemen, courtiers, administrators. And I think it does make more sense, or it could make more sense, to talk about that in factional terms. So it's not that I'm resistant to the notion, but I just don't think that they fit the circumstances, the sources of Henry VIII's reign. And one of the things that led me to that view was the work of Simon Adams on Queen Elizabeth's reign, in particular 1570s and 80s, where he argued that there was very little to suggest that there was tension between the councillors, that they were working together very much there again as the Queen's servants. Yes, I mean, I'm very largely persuaded by what you say and have also gone into looking at the reign of Henry VIII, looking for evidence of factional involvement in, say, Henry VIII's will or the fall of Anne Boleyn and gone in with an open mind when it came to the end of his life, particularly thinking, well, I didn't see it in 1536, but maybe I will in 1546. But still, it seems there is not much evidence of it and there's a lot of assertion of it. So I, I think you've been very much breaking through this strangely gripping idea. Why do you think the idea is so gripping? Is it just because we think of political parties? Jack Scarisbrick, I once asked Jack that question and he mused that perhaps it was the decline of Marxist interpretations of history, that if you were then looking for something that could hold together a range of activity, faction had a certain appeal particularly a faction which is discovered by historians in the sense that is a historian making considerable claims. But no, I began long ago by looking at Sir William Compton, groom of the stool, close body servant of Henry VIII. And what I was expecting to find was an Eminence Grise. I was thinking that this will be, you know, it's not Woolsey, but it'll be Compton who is making decisions. But it just didn't work. And one of the features, nature of history, is that historians historians put together a hypothesis, put together a model, link things together, see if they can make an argument. But sometimes you have to acknowledge that, no, this isn't going anywhere. This doesn't work. That Sir William Compton never did anything that we could call political. There's no sign that he had views about the financial administration or about war against France or the king's divorce. He died in 1528, so he wasn't much involved in that. But there's no sign that he did anything but a massive fortune for himself and serve the king as the king's close body servant. And that wasn't what I was expecting or hoping to find. I'm not suggesting at all that this is the case of someone like Professor Eric Ives, who is a wonderful historian. But I suppose it would be fair to say that when one has a hypothesis and the evidence doesn't prove it, but you still continue with the hypothesis, that's when we've run into bad history. That's a very good way of putting it. I agree. Yes. And there can be a point where it's quite difficult to change your mind. 
But to be fair to Geoffrey Alton, he did quite significantly change his mind over the role of Parliament. He was one of those who saw the Reformation Parliament as very significant as the transformation of the power of Parliament. But later in life, he particularly attacked John Neal, his former supervisor, and Elizabeth's parliaments, suggesting they weren't really politically active, that they were not really interested in sovereignty and whatever. And in some ways didn't matter at all. And he was going a long way there from what he had argued before. What I regretted was that he didn't acknowledge this and explain why. I don't think historians have to stick with a view when they first articulated it, if they later think that actually that doesn't work. I don't think that makes you a bad historian. And I think that looking back at what you've come across and reflecting on how your ideas evolve, not least in dialogue with others, I think is one of the things that makes history the very stimulating subject it is. The only trouble, of course, is when those earlier iterations are the ones that keep being published. I mean, I think of David Starkey's definitely changed his view about Mm. the nature of power under Henry VIII. And yet, of course, his book, The Reign of Henry VIII, remains quite a textbook, even though many things he's said since completely contradict it. I think what is good is if you acknowledge your reasoning and how you've reached particular positions. I think that historians should do that. There's one last thing to talk about in terms of power, which is about the fact that it's ultimately about enforcement. So we've thought about Mm. those who are ruling the nature of sort of parliament and the making of laws, and then, of course, they need to be enforced. And power often depends on military force, But the Tudors don't have a standing army. They don't have a police force. Tudor government is a kind of magic trick. You know, it doesn't rely so much on coercion as we might think, but much more on kind of consent and collaboration and compliance. What does this say about the nature of power in the period? That's very interesting. Enforcement is partly a matter of being skillful in presenting what you want. But it's also, I think, sometimes being careful in asking what it's reasonable to expect and to get and not pushing your luck or not being too difficult. And I think this is visible in taxation, that Tudor monarchs, Tudor finance ministers don't overdo it. Rhetorically, they may ask for £800,000 when Parliament meets, but they know very well that what they're likely to get if they bargain is maybe 100000 but nevertheless, that's still very valuable. And I think Elizabeth's government were reluctant to take on what I suppose they would see as vested interests. And to some extent, that does qualify the power of the monarchy. There are limits. But Elizabeth and her ministers did not attempt a fundamental reform of taxation. And there are plenty of modern historians who think that they should have done. I mean, I'm a bit more sympathetic to Elizabeth having to deal with the problems. But again, that didn't stop for a while. Elizabeth and her government from selling or granting monopolies, the right to sell or manufacture something, which is in effect a kind of hidden tax on consumption. And it did provoke considerable opposition, disquiet, and Elizabeth gave in and didn't press. Maybe monarchs need a sense of timing of when something is possible when it's outrageous. And one of the, again, the paradoxes of power is that, you know, what can look to be perfectly reasonable then appears not to be so. 
And enforcement, well, you know, take the amicable grant, the huge financial demand of 1525. People were pressed to agree to make a payment, but they weren't very happy. There were some gatherings. We haven't got many sources, so it's hard to be sure how to weigh what took place. But yes, there was clearly dissent expressed. Henry VIII abandoned the whole demand. In the 17th century, Charles I, in similar circumstances, pressed on and got money. Henry probably could have got the amicable grant in 1525 if he'd pressed on, but Charles could have told him that there were political consequences of doing that. And on the whole, the Tudors don't push their luck too far. Where I think I puzzle over is Henry VIII and the break with Rome itself and the associated religious changes like the dissolution of monasteries. But I suspect that Henry was just lucky. That could easily have turned into something much more fundamental than it was. The Reformation Parliament gave Henry the legislation he wanted. How many MPs really believed in it, valued it? But there it was. Did people feel to some extent intimidated? Parliaments were the political nation, but many members of the parliament, like members of the political nation, had quite close ties with monarchs. They weren't going to overturn things. And what Henry was doing over the break with Rome was very much personal. It had all to do with the divorce. And I suppose you could think, well, it will all get sorted out. This is temporary. And so you go along with it. But it turned out not to be temporary. So one final question then, what does that mean for our understanding of Henry VIII as a tyrant? Because if we think about Henry being a tyrant, and both you and I have come to this conclusion according to modern and 16th century definitions of tyranny, is what you're saying that he's basically a reasonable tyrant? He's a Machiavellian tyrant who weighs the odds, I think, and is aware that some things will work and other things will not work so well. I quote him as saying that when his diplomats go negotiating in France or wherever, they must give the King of France the hope reasonable confidence that Henry will make a deal, but mustn't make it look certain, because men value more the things they're going to get than what they've already been promised. I think perhaps when he imposes an oath, which every adult has to swear to the supremacy, a public oath to refuse to do that, is then met with imprisonment and execution. I wonder whether that isn't tyrannical. When Memorandum talks about the abbots of Reading and Glastonbury, who are two of only three who stood out in defence of the monasteries, when the Memorandum says that they are to be sent down, tried and executed, that is worrying, I think. And it's the methods Henry uses to enforce the break with Rome, where I think you can make the best case that he was a tyrant. Tyranny is a matter of how people feel, how frightened they feel. And surely what Henry was doing with his O's was to impose himself to frighten people. And when Sir Geoffrey Poole was arrested and kept in the Tower of London on suspicion that he'd been involved in treasonable dealings with his brother in exile and so on, he committed or attempted to commit suicide. I think that tells us something about the pressures on people. When the pilgrimage of grace was up in arms, Robert asked, people were talking about having a free parliament 
people choosing freely. What's that saying about the parliament of the 1530s? So I think tyranny is not an unreasonable way of describing Henry VIII's methods. I suspect that he would have preferred not to have to implement his harsh policies. But if that was how it had to be done, he did it with Machiavellian skill, I think. You've said in your book that it seems unlikely that anyone's going to construct a version of understanding the Tudor government that puts people like Cromwell in absolute prime position anymore. And yet, at exactly the same time, in historical fiction, obviously in the Wolf Hall Hmm. trilogy, we see Elton's legacy. We see arguably Hilary Mantel as a sort of Eltonian who's saying Cromwell's behind it all. Absolutely, yes, indeed. And it's rather remarkable that, in a way, Elton's greatest legacy may well be the portrayal that's given by Hilary Mantel of Cromwell's position. There's nothing in Hilary Mantel's novels which amounts to a Tudor revolution in government. Administration is considered, I think, too difficult or too boring. But nevertheless, the impression is given that this is someone who could well have been implementing a Tudor revolution in government, someone who's bold and energetic. And to that extent, I think that Hilary Mantel is right. But it is rather ironic. Elton, I think, wouldn't have had much truck with historical fiction. He didn't like popular biographies. He didn't like biography. He didn't think it could be done because the sources didn't tell you enough about the inner man, the inner woman. In a way, what Hilary Mantel has done is to offer one view of that. And it's obviously struck a chord. But sometimes one has to be cautious that it perhaps isn't altogether true or that it's perhaps a version of the past. But yes, the link, I think, isn't a direct one to Elton. But Elton got to know Mary Robertson, who was an archivist and historian in California, in the end worked at Huntington in the library. And she studied... Cromwell's personal wealth and activities, his collecting together a patrimony and landed society. And Hilary Mantel, I think, dedicates one of her books to Mary Robertson. And Mary Robertson, I think, wasn't interested directly in Tudor revolutions, but she did, I think, convey that interestingly to Hilary Mantel. I think probably difficult to tell who's coming up with what, as it were. But I think that is all very interesting. And I don't think that administrative history will be written about in the way that it was before and during Elton's ascendancy. But Hilary Mantel has certainly given Thomas Cromwell a very prominent role, and that, I suspect, because of her novels, will endure. And your book, Who Ruled Tudor England, and indeed your other works, including The King's Reformation, are good counterweights two Mantel's wonderful novels. So I recommend that you have on one hand Wolf Hall and the other The King's Reformation and both are heavyweights in terms of both their writing and indeed literally how big they are, but very enjoyable indeed. It's been wonderful to talk to you, George. There's always so much that can come out of our conversations and this has been a real education actually in terms of thinking about the nature of power. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. 
And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.